my religious studies classes in college, we would occasionally look at significant trials that affected philosophy or religion or church history or ethics. Uh, Some of the trials we looked at were the trial of Socrates, Martin Luther, Thomas More, the Salem witch trials, Tennessee versus John Scopes called the Scopes monkey trial, Brown versus the Board of Education, the uh, end of segregation. And depending on the course and the teacher, we might also look at Jesus trials. This morning as we continue our series and study in the Gospel of John, John touches on two of those trials, Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin and Jesus' Roman trial before the governor of Israel, the Roman governor of Israel, Pontius Pilate. There's a third trial that is going on as well, and we want to look at all three this morning. Uh, But before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I uh, thank you for that time of worship where we could just take in, breathe in your presence. And I pray, Lord, we would do that. I pray that we would find those moments just to stop and be still and breathe you in. And I pray this would be one of them. That, Lord, we would be able to set aside all that awaits us, all that we have to do, all that we face, all that's going to happen, and give you our entire attention. Take your word and pour it into us. Breathe in your spirit that when we leave here, we will have said, I met God. I heard God. I love God. Pray that would be so. Pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. John starts off then in chapter 18 by describing two groups that are tracking Jesus down. In verse 18, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus, uh, John says, let me try this all over again. We're in the gospel of John. Verse 1 of chapter 18, he writes, when Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came up to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. He highlights what may not seem, when you read this, to be two groups, a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. In particular, the detachment of soldiers, uh, in fact, that Greek word means the Latin word cohort. And so he's identifying a particular group of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers, not Jewish soldiers. These are Roman soldiers, part of the Antonia fortress cohort. Um, In this depiction of the Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, the fortress Antonia was built by King Herod and was built on the northeast corner of the Temple Mount area, which is just kind of amazing to think that a Jewish king built a Roman fortress so that the Romans could flood the temple at any time with Roman soldiers. Talk about betrayal. 
Well, the Fortress Antonia was there to watch over everything that went on in the temple area. But the soldiers were also used for other things, like making sure peace was maintained. It wasn't a huge force, a cohort is a thousand soldiers made up of infantry and cavalry. And John certainly doesn't mean that the entire cohort went to arrest Jesus, but that soldiers of this cohort. John goes on to tell us that a, uh, an official, a commander, was with the soldiers. So it was a significant group. This group had the authority of Roman power with it. Now, along with the Romans, there were also Jewish officials. They would be representatives of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish supreme legal and religious court of Israel. Uh, There would be officials as well as temple police. So there are two separate groups involved in Jesus' arrest, and each will have their own time with Jesus. They bound him after arresting him and first brought him to Annas, John tells us. Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas is, at one time, the high priest for Israel. He is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He orders Jesus to come to him first, sort of as a deposition. Annas wants to make sure that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are not going to stumble or trip over some political issue here. He wants to make sure that who they've arrested and what he's going to be charged with is clear to everybody. And so Annas sort of gives a deposition with Jesus. And then Annas, when he's comfortable with uh, this, uh, this deposition, sends Jesus then on to Caiaphas for his first trial. His first trial is with the Jewish Sanhedrin. Caiaphas, as the high priest, presides over the Sanhedrin. As I said, it's the Supreme Court of Israel. It uh, oversees significant cases, and this one is significant. It has the attention of the high priest and the high priest's father-in-law. Now, the interesting thing is that John isn't interested in this trial. He gives no record of it other than Jesus went to Caiaphas and to the Sanhedrin. What we know happened there, we know from other gospels. We do know that some mention is made of the charge against Jesus in John's gospel. In chapter 19, the Jewish leaders insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, speaking of Jesus, because he claimed to be the son of God. And so John lets us know through the mouths of the Jewish leaders that the charge against Jesus is blasphemy, charge of claiming to be equal with Yahweh. We know because of the next trial that the verdict was guilty, that they found Jesus guilty of claiming to be equal with God. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. This now then is the second trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And the interesting thing is that this is the trial that John is most interested in. He gives chapter 18 and a lot of chapter 19 over to what happens between Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders and Jesus. Pontius Pilate interviews both the leaders, and Jesus. Pilate came out to them, the leadership, and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Now, watch this carefully. If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Did they tell him what charge? No, they didn't, exactly. 
Pilate came out to them and said, what are the charges you're bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. And here's the issue that the Jewish leaders are facing. Every occupied nation, occupied by the Romans, lost the right to uh, corporal punishment. They could not, or I should say capital punishment, they could not kill someone. Even if they found a person guilty of murder or guilty of the highest charges against their nation, they could not invoke capital punishment. That right was only held by the Romans. They know that. The Jewish leaders know that. And that's why they are hesitant to tell Pilate why they have found him guilty. Now we know in chapter 19 that they tell Pilate, well, he's guilty of blasphemy. And our laws state that someone who blasphemies should be put to death. But we can't do that. So when they bring him to Pilate, they're um, a little uncomfortable explaining everything to him. They simply want Pilate to take care of Jesus. But Pilate's not a dumb guy. He senses what's going on here. He recognizes that he's going to be used. And he's going to use Jesus to get back at them. Now, the Jewish leaders know that the one thing that will attract attention And the one thing that will get Jesus killed more than any other thing is sedition. You heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Well, it could equally be said that all roads leading to Rome were lined with crucified seditionists. It's the one crime that the Romans were more sensitive to than any other crime. The the idea that rebellion could start at the smallest spark had their attention. And so Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you what? King of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you making yourself out to be king? Are you a seditionist? Are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Jesus knows. He knows that what they're saying to Pilate is, you know what, he's made himself to be king. Pilate picks up on that. And then he says, am I a Jew? It was your people, your chief priests, who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this cause I came into the world to testify to the truth. Now, Pilate knows I've got him. I can do whatever I want with this man because he's already admitted to sedition. He's already made himself out to be king. But as he's being used by the Jews, he decides to use Jesus for his own cause. Now, John is very sympathetic to Pilate. Um, I don't really share in those sympathies. Pilate's shrewd. He's going to get something out of this. And so he goes back to the Jewish leaders and he says to them, you know, he, he claims to be your king. Really, do you want to kill your king? He's your king. And the Jews cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And at that moment, Pilate gives in because he's got what he's wanted. You just claimed my Caesar to be yours. I'll kill this man for you. But remember this moment. Remember what you said here. You have no king but Caesar. 
So the second trial begins. The charge is sedition, claiming to be king, and the verdict is guilty. It was the custom of any criminal crucified that the crime would be either nailed to the foot of his cross or hung on the top of the cross. Pontius Pilate hang at the top of Jesus' cross his crime, king of the Jews. Now, both of these trials and both of these verdicts, claiming to be king and claiming to be equal with Yahweh, are true, right? I'm, they're true. Jesus is the king of the universe. Jesus is the son of God. He is equal with Yahweh. And I, I, I admire Jesus' patience. I admire his toleration, but uh, I feel like it's the lion and an ant. I mean, there is part of me that wants Jesus to say to the Sanhedrin, you, you sanctimonious, whatever, you know, morons. I am God. I want him to say to Pilate, you pompous jerk. I'm the king of the universe. I want the lion of Judah to unleash his roar. I want the lion of Judah to bear his claws. These are ants. These are fleas. These are nothing. You are God. You are the king of the universe. I want him to put him down. Kind of like this. Bam! Right? Right? I mean, you know, you see the, the, the Sanhedrin, you know, and, and, and Pilate, so full of himself, and they're standing before God and before the king of the universe. And I just want him to take him down. Show who you are. Bear your claws. Unleash that roar. You are the Lion of Judah. Why won't he do that? Because of the third trial. And the third trial is the most important one. It's the reason Jesus has come. And the third trial is before God the Father. The third trial is before God the Father. And the charge of the third trial is sin. And the Father finds Jesus guilty. Now, of the charges laid against Jesus, this is the one we would say he is innocent of. I mean, yes, he is, he is God. And yes, he is king of the universe. But sin. Uh, we call Jesus perfect. We don't call him a sinner. We call Jesus righteous. We don't call Jesus sinful. He, he, he's not really guilty of sin, right? He is. Completely. Look at these passages. God made him who had no sin to be what? Sin. An image of sin? No. Sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us 
It wasn't that Jesus was righteous and took sin in hand. Jesus was righteous and became sin itself. So much so that when the Father looked at Jesus, he saw a sinner and judged him and found him guilty and condemned him. Now, why would he do that? Why didn't Jesus just rise up? Because of this. So when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats because the first two trials were not what Jesus was after. It was the third trial he knew waited him. And instead, when he came to that third trial, he entrusted himself to him who what? Judges. He entrusted himself to God the Father to judge justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. How did the Father just uh, how did the, the Father judge Jesus then? The Father judged him justly. He found him guilty of sin, so that we might die to sins and live for the righteousness by his wounds. We have been healed. And the thing that grabs us here is that the one verdict we feel that Jesus is more innocent of, most innocent of, is the one he's most guilty of. Right? We never think of Jesus as a sinner. We never think of Jesus as sinful. So why was he condemned to death? Why would the Father turn away from him at the cross? Why did the Father make him go to the cross? Why did the Father judge Jesus? Because he was sinful. Because he was a sinner. Now, I would, I would love to lay this at the feet of the Sanhedrin. I would love to point to Pilate and say, see what you did. And while they are culpable... They're not the reason for the third trial. We often say, Christ died for us, right? Christ died for you. Oh, we often say that. And when we say it that way, it, it makes Jesus sound heroic. And it makes the cross seem sacrificial. And it makes us to be the beneficiaries. Right? So Jesus did something incredibly heroic by dying on the cross for you. And by doing that, you become the beneficiary of everything he did. That sounds great. But it would be far more accurate for us to say that he died because of us. He died because of me. He died because of you. That's not as palatable. Because that makes Jesus' death sound tragic. And that makes me and that makes you sound responsible. And when we say it this way, his death is tragic. And when we say it this way, you are responsible. 
He died because of you. He died because of me. So that got me thinking. I, uh, I don't feel buried by guilt. I know that Jesus died because of me, but you'd think I would feel buried by guilt. You'd think I would feel overwhelmed with the shame of that. You think that, that someone who recognized that Jesus died because of them wouldn't dare set foot in a church. I'm the cause. I did it. My responsibility. You would think that we would be afraid of approaching God because of what we did, but we aren't. And that got me thinking, why? Why do I not feel overwhelmed by shame and buried by this guilt? And I, re I realize it's because that's not what Jesus asks of me. That's not what he asks of me. In fact, Jesus wants to trade our guilt and our shame for this, for three things, the gratitude of the saved, All of this is, is couched in language of love. That yes, Jesus died because of me. Yes, Jesus died because of you. But all of it was motivated by God's love. And God took all that was dumped onto Jesus and judged him a sinner. And God took all the righteousness of Jesus and poured that over us and judge us to be clean and righteous and holy. That act we call grace, by God's grace. And so it moves us with the deepest feelings of gratitude for what God has done in our lives. Undeserving grace. So we sing the song Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me because Jesus died because of me. Jesus asked for the love of a child of God. Jesus made a way for the prodigal child to come home. He made a way for you to be back where you should have been always with the Father. And we were met not by a father who was glaring crossed arms admonishing us for what we've caused what terrible things we brought to the family a father that runs to greet us a father that throws his arms open wide and embraces us and before we can say i'm so sorry for what i have caused the father said you are my child and i love you welcome home welcome home and he asks of us the faith and devotion of a follower. Jesus said, I did this because of what you did. But what I ask of you is to believe. Give me your heart, give me your life, and watch what I can do with it. Become an all-in, sold-out follower and I will change your life.
So that's why we're not buried by the guilt and we're not overwhelmed by the shame because Jesus asks of us the gratitude of the saved, the love of a child of God and the faith and devotion of a follower. As I shared with you Christmas Eve, this is such a great deal. Take it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, it is sometimes overwhelming to think of that third trial. It um, is so much easier to point at the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and Pilate and to hate them for all that they did to you. Much easier to turn to them than to look in the mirror. Lord, I know what I caused. But I am so grateful so grateful for what you did because of me that you did not leave us in our sins you did not leave us as prodigals you welcomed us in you welcomed us home through the cross and showed us grace Thank you. May we love you as nothing else. We pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.